We're going to be in 1 Timothy 6 this morning. We're going to do that the next couple weeks. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bible. It's the season of Thanksgiving. We're doing our Thanksgiving Eve service tonight. Um, and or not, it's not Thanksgiving Eve. It's not that, we're not there yet. I'm like, I'm ready though. Let's do it, right? Um, we've got like a couple weeks yet, but we'll get there. But tonight, uh, we get to eat some good food and be together for that. Looking forward to that. And, and, and I love this season because we have so much to be thankful for. And so you can get on Facebook this time of year and go through your news feed and see person after person, some believers, some not believers, but they're all doing this thing. A lot of people are doing this thing where you put on one thing every day that you're thankful for, right? And so, so we want to be a thankful people. And it's fun to see what people are thankful for. And we can make a list that went a lot longer than, you know, 28 days or whatever leading up to Thanksgiving. The thing is, what a lot of us will culminate all this in is, is a big meal together with family. That's kind of how we typically celebrate in our country. And so many families will gather together with a large group on maybe Thursday, November 28th, maybe a different day. Uh, but on Thursday, November 28th, many people will be getting together, having a lot of food. And one of the things that will probably pray as you pray for that meal is you will say something like, God, we are so thankful for the abundance. We use that word a lot of times around Thanksgiving, right? The abundance of what you've given to us. It's so much more than we need, God. We're so thankful for everything. Amen. And within hours of saying amen, we're lining up to go buy stuff that God hasn't given us yet, right? Isn't it a weird thing that happens? And some of you are into that, uh, and some of you aren't. Um, but, but we have this idea like, God, you've given us so much. So much more than we need. And now it's time to go get some more. Right? That's kind of our attitude. That's what Black Friday is all about. And so, we like to think that we're a thankful people and we're a content people. But I think if we're honest, whether you go shop, don't think you're off the hook if you don't go shopping on Black Friday, by the way. Which this year, you might not even have to wait that long, it looks like. Some stores are going to be open on Thursday. So you can not even be thankful for a few hours. You can just be thankful for like a half hour. Eat and then go and shop, right? Um, but, but don't think you're off the hook. I think all of us have to examine our hearts here this morning. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be opening up God's Word in 1 Timothy 6 and asking ourselves the question, are we really content? Are we really content? And I think if we're honest, we'd all have to answer, not probably as content as we should be, right? We've all contracted the disease of discontentment. And our world steps in to offer many remedies. That, that's the way it works, right? I love this description that I read in this book, uh, The Greener Grass Conspiracy by Stephen Altrogi. You can go ahead and put the quote up there. Here's the quote. It says this, Everywhere I turn, the world is offering me pleasure. I'm told to buy more things, have more fun, drink more beer, purchase a bigger house, climb the career ladder, get married, stay single, don't think about tomorrow. Happiness is just around the corner in aisle 13 at Best Buy. The world makes big, fat promises of immediate pleasure. It flashes its artificially whitened teeth and tells me to enjoy myself. But the world lies to me. Because most of us who have been trying... A number of those things, we figure out that the truth is they don't make us content. We're discontent because we've been deceived. We just don't realize that much of what the world has to offer is just bait. It's bait that's attached to a hook that Satan 
has the, re- the, 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 the fishing line, and he's trying to pull it in. He's trying to reel us in. And a lot of times he'll use the bait of the world to do that. We've got three enemies, uh, Satan and the world and our own sinful flesh. Really about all we can do with that, 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 that enemy of Satan is we can pray for protection, right? And we can also, with, with the world, we can, we can try and cut ourselves off from it, but the truth is we live in it. And it's going to be hard to cut ourselves off from the world. But one thing we can do is we can look at our own hearts. And that's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. To examine our hearts. We can't cut ourselves off from the world, but we can look at our hearts. You know, as I think of that fishing analogy, this has always been helpful for me. That if we imagine that Satan is this fisherman trying to reel people in. And he's got this, this hook. And on that hook he's got the bait. And the bait is the world. Okay? The bait is, and, and there's a lot of things in the world that look good, right? Worms are good for fish, right? They look good. And so a lot of ways that, well, I'm kind of hungry, right? The, the, the problem that if you just have a fisherman, and I'm not a fisherman, but if you, you guys have fish, you know this. If you have a fisherman who has some bait and a hook, that's not enough to catch a fish, right? You also need the fish to be hungry. That's why you go fishing at certain times of the day. Because there's certain times when you know the fish will be hungry. The truth about us is that we are hungry fish. And I want us to examine the areas in our life in which we're hungry. Because if we're satisfied, then we're not going to go after all the bait, right? That's the problem that fishermen have. That they, they put bait down there, but fish don't always bite it. Why? Because fish aren't always hungry. If they're well fed, if they've been satisfied with something else, they're not going to go after that bait and not going to get hooked. So we're going to look at what, it, what, are, what are our hungers over the next couple weeks. What is it that we're longing for? We're going to look at specifically today 1 Timothy 6 verses 6 through 10, but we're jumping in at the end of a book. And so just a little context. This is a letter that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write and, and preserved through the generations. But, but he had Paul initially write this letter to a young man named Timothy. Paul had been mentoring Timothy to be a pastor in the church at Ephesus. Okay? And so that's where he is, that's who it's to. And the message of the book, you could put it a lot of different ways, but, but Paul wants Timothy to help his church to be what they're called to be. That is, in, verse, in chapter 1, I think, he calls them the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. That's actually chapter 3. Okay? So, so as Timothy tries to pastor the church and make the church what they're supposed to be, it's important that Timothy preach correct doctrine. And there are other people in the church causing some problems. They're teaching false things. And the big idea of the book could be summed up like this. That if you're getting false teaching, that will lead to false believing. And if you're believing something that's false, that's going to lead to false living. And so that makes it very, very important that the church gets good teaching. And so Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, be sure that you teach them well and also make sure that the people that are teaching falsely don't get to teach anymore. Because good teaching can lead to right believing, can lead to right living. Okay, so he's not just saying, Timothy, address all the behavior problems in the church. He's saying, Timothy, address the teaching problems and the believing problems in the church and the behavior problems will fix themselves, right? So that's kind of the context of the book of 1 Timothy. And that leads us up to where we're going to look today. 
grateful that God has preserved His Word for us so that we can see that, that this is not just something that applies very quickly to Timothy and the church at Ephesus. This certainly applies to us today. Now, verses 3 through 5 are the beginning of the paragraph. I need to read those before we actually read our passage for today because we need to understand the context a little bit better. Verses 3 through 5 in chapter 6 say this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, see there's that idea of false teaching, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, then he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining, and here's the problem that leads to what we're going to look at today, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's a problem. There were teachers in this church that were seeking to be godly people so that they could get something from it. Right? This idea that, the, that, that their godliness, that their, their work that they were doing in teaching people in the church was somehow for their own gain. Imagine how messed up a church could be if the people that were in charge of teaching the church were really just doing it for their own gain. Right? That's going to be a messed up church. And so Paul says to Timothy, don't let the church get that way. And there's this problem that's underlying this desire that they have for gain. And the problem is a universal problem. It's a problem at the church in Ephesus, and we're going to see it in verses 6 through 10, but it's a problem at the church of Iowa Falls as well. And so it's going to hit us, hopefully, today as we look at God's Word from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Here's the big idea this morning. The big idea is this. Discontentment is costly, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay? Discontentment is costly, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So if you have your Bible, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 6 through 10. And as we read God's Word, let's stand together if you're able. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You can be seated. Stern warning at the end about the cost, the great cost of discontentment. We're going to start with verses 6 through 8, which really talk about the great gain of godliness with contentment. So let's look at verse 6. You see what verse 6 said? But godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Before we understand what that even means, we need to understand what godliness and contentment are, okay? So we need to define those two words. When you think of godliness, what, what comes to your mind? If somebody is a godly woman or a godly man, we often think of them being somebody who is obedient to the Word of God, right? That they're, that they're living life the way that life ought to be lived according to God's Word, right? That's what we think of when we think of godliness. But there's a little more to it than that. If you turn back just maybe a couple pages in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we get a little bit of a sense of what godliness means. Look at verse 16 in chapter 3. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So we're going to hear, learn something about godliness. But look what it is. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Godliness is just not about behaving rightly. Godliness, as I looked up the definition in the original language and stuff, they would use godliness as a term that really meant basically a combination of two things. One is reverence, and the second is obedience. That, that godliness doesn't just require you acting right and doing the right thing. Godliness requires you knowing something about who God is and what he's done and being in awe of that. So you see that in verse 16 of chapter 3. It's all about what Jesus has done. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And so that somehow has something to do with the mystery of this thing called godliness. So godliness is understanding enough about who God is and what God has done that we are amazed and we stand in reverent awe of Him that leads to our obedience of Him, right? That's godliness, okay? So godliness with contentment. What's contentment? Contentment is really the state of needing nothing else. You're content if you need nothing else. You've been at a restaurant before and, uh, and you just ate probably way too much, right? And then the waitress comes over and says, hey, did you save any room for dessert? And what's your, almost always your answer is like, no, no, like I'm good, right? That's contentment. It, it's, it's saying, I'm full, I am, I have everything I need. I'm in a state of needing nothing else, right? I, I, ha- I just took in everything I needed. I am now content. I have everything I need. I'm good. I don't need dessert. It's looking at something that's offered you and saying, I don't need that because I'm content. I have what I need, right? That's contentment. So godliness with contentment is great gain. So we don't gain something with godliness alone, but we gain something when we live a godly life that's characterized by contentment of that which we've already gained. So here's what doesn't work. This doesn't work. We could say to ourselves, I'm going to try and gain or receive something from God by being godly. Right? That doesn't work. I I, I want something from God, and so in order to get something from God, I'm going to try and be godly. I'm going to try and put some money in the offering plate because then God's going to give me something. Right? Or I'm going to try and be like... I'm going to try and be good, and then God, that's not the way it works. It doesn't work. That's godliness, like, like trying to get something from God by doing something that you think God might like. Godliness with contentment, though, the way it does work is this. I am in awe of God and obedient to God because of what He's already done. And because of what He's already done and given to me, I'm content with what I have in Him. That's enough. Okay? And with that, it says, comes great gain. The ironic thing is the people in verse 5 that are trying to seek after gain, they're not getting it. But the people that aren't seeking after gain, they're just seeking after trying to be content. They're the ones that get stuff. Okay? So, we're going to talk a little bit later in the sermon because it didn't really answer the question here, what is the great gain that comes with godliness with contentment? It doesn't say that really here. So I'm going to talk about that later on in the sermon. But verse 7, verse 7, you look at verse 7, here's what it says. Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take, take nothing out of the world. You know that, right? I gotta talk to elementary school kids in here, you know that, right? We brought nothing into the world. Like when you came in, 
You didn't have stuff. When you were born, you didn't have stuff, right? And, and when you die, you're not going to take any stuff with you. That's why you've maybe heard people say, like, you've never seen a, a hearse towing a U-Haul, right? Or, or, you know, just like, a hearse ain't got no hitch. They don't need one, right? Because you're not going to take anything with you when you die. We know that to be true. This is called an eternal perspective. And that has implications. If we believe verse 7, look at verse 7. Do you really believe that? I mean, you know that to be true, but do you live that way? Does verse 7 actually shape the way that we live? It should. Knowing that we came into the world with nothing and we're going to leave with nothing. I love an illustration that Randy Elkhorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, and that's actually one of the things that you can get on that Right Now Media. You can, you can get like a workshop called The Treasure Principle. If you want to do something like, you know, to look at your finances, um, Maybe you and your spouse do that together or whatever. That would be a great thing to look at, and you'll be able to do that tomorrow. But in the treasure principle, he has this uh, illustration um, that he uses. He's saying, okay, let's say for a moment that you are a, uh, a citizen of France. Okay? So you're a French person who's coming to visit the United States for an extended visit. You're going to be here for three months. And while you're here in the United States, you are going to live in a hotel. Now, the rules of you coming to visit is that you cannot take anything back with you to France. You're coming with the clothing that you're wearing, and you're leaving with the clothing. That's it. Like, you don't get to take luggage back with you to France. And so, he says, would you fill your hotel room with expensive furniture and wall hangings? No. That would be ridiculous. The one thing he says that you can do is you can, or if you earn any money, you can go ahead and, and deposit that in your French bank account online. You can just go ahead and do that, right? So you can, you can send stuff on ahead, but you can't take anything with you. So he says, it would be ridiculous to, to adorn your hotel room with expensive... Fr- like, you're just going to stay there for a little bit. Sure, you need to buy, use your money to buy some things while you're there, but you're not going to like put nice decorations on the wall and buy expensive furniture. to get. You're only going to be there for three months. It's temporary, Right? And so he says, well, you would, of course, send your money where your home is. You would spend only what you needed on the temporary residence, sending your treasures ahead so they'd be waiting for you when you got home. And for Christians, our true citizenship is not here on earth. Our true citizenship is in heaven. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he says then to store up treasures, not here on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where, where those things don't happen. Right? Send it on ahead. Like, you can't take it with you anyway, so why are you so focused on getting so much stuff here? It's always embarrassing to know how much stuff you have, like when you move or when it comes time for the community sale, and you're like, I just gave away that much stuff? How much stuff must I have if I can give that much away, right? We have a lot. But go ahead and look at verse 8. Verse 8, Paul's list of what he's going to be content with, I think is a lot shorter than our list. Look at Paul's list. Verse 8, But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Hmm. Is that true? If we have food and clothing with these, we will be... Do we have food? Oh, we have food. Right? We can go to eat at a buffet. And when we're done with one plate, we go get a clean plate and fill it up again. And we can do that over and over again. We have enough food in our homes to last us for probably a couple weeks if, if we had to. Right? We have enough food in our grocery stores to fill 
thousands of people. We have food. If our kids are picky and they really don't want, then we can give them something else. If we've got a craving late at night before bed, we can probably find something in our house to satisfy that craving. We have food, right? Clothing. Do we have clothing? Oh, we have clothing, right? We, like, that's one thing we noticed as we looked at houses. Older houses, small closets. People used to have less clothing. Newer house, big closets. Some of you have closets you can walk in, Right? If we added up the closet space in our homes, that total square footage might be bigger than the total square footage of the living space of some people, other, like total living space of other people in the world, right? We have clothes. And, and, if, and if our clothes, you know, are maybe a couple years old and we look at them and we look at somebody else, oh, that looks more up to date, then we can get rid of that and get something new. We have clothing. We have food. That's certainly true. Are we content? Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Two things on his list. I mean, we look at other stuff and are like, we got that, but we got other stuff we're complaining about, right? I mean, you can look at our vehicles. Look at mine, uh, you know, they're, uh, math, uh, 13 and 11 years old are two. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there, there, I could get a newer vehicle that has some, some nicer features. Like, could, could I go after that? Wouldn't that be a good idea, Right? But then you look at, you know, other people, other places in the world. Like we got our garages, the places that store our vehicles, again, are probably bigger than most people's total living space. And when I was down in uh, Central America in Belize, um, police officers uh, came up to the scene of something and were kind of checking things out. Co- almost comical. Police officers come up. They worked as partners, so two of them come up riding together on a moped. Hard, it's hard to look authoritative when you've got two dudes holding on to each other on a moped, right? But, the, but that's how they were getting around, you know? And, and, and so, and we're looking at like, well, you know, we, we have two drivers in our family and two vehicles. Maybe, maybe, maybe one of them could be updated or upgraded in some way. Like, you look at your phone like, well, man, that new one just came out. Like, I had the four, but now they got the five. Maybe I should get the five, right? Like, we're not content with just food and clothing. We can't say amen to verse 8, right? We can't, if we're honest. Because we've got so much more than food and clothing, and we're still not content. Our society like, works on contentment. HGTV wouldn't exist anymore if people were content, right? Because the whole network's all about like, hey, I don't have what I like, I want to get what I like, and so watch me get what I like. And then probably two years after that, they're probably not happy with that either, right? So, so we are a discontent people. We see what other people have. We go visit somebody at their house and we decide maybe our house isn't quite good enough or, or maybe what we haven't. Like, we just want more all the time. As my rapper friend KB says, our d- deepest desires might be the worst thing. Our hearts are wicked. You don't know what that curse brings. I get something new, then I look at you. If I have one, but you have two, that, oh wait, I, can't, I did it wrong. Bummer. You can't mess up rap because then it totally doesn't work. Anyway, there, go listen to this song by uh, KB, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's good. I'm not even going to try it again. I'm sorry. When we see people with stuff, we see people, they have stuff. <laughs> yeah, if I had a beat, I could totally do it. Um, if we see people and they have stuff, we might be happy with our stuff, but once we see other people's stuff, then we want it. We feel like we need it. Like, I might be totally content without a tortilla chip. But as soon as I see a tortilla chip, like, 
oh, that actually looks pretty good, and I really like chips. And so I have some tortilla chips, right? But what, anybody ever, like, go to the cupboard and get a tortilla chip? You don't do that. You see tortilla chips like, well, that was good. I'd like another tortilla chip. And you just keep going, right? And that's the way it works. Ironically, it seems like the more we have, shouldn't it be, the more we have, the more content we are? But it doesn't work that way. The more we have, the more discontent we become. And that's weird. But it's true. But is discontentment that big of a deal? I mean, really. Is discontentment a big deal? Is it costly in any way? Isn't it okay to just kind of be like, I mean, everybody else is discontent. There's a lot of other sins. Listen, there's a lot of other sins that if you commit them, there's like a stigma associated with it. And people are like, you're going to feel guilty about that sin. But everybody's being greedy. Everybody's coveting. Everybody's discontent. And so you can be discontent, and most people won't even know it. Right? You can get away with this one. So is it costly in any way? And I think verses 9 and 10 say yes. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. The great cost of discontentment. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Hold on for a second. Those who desire to be rich, who is that? I mean, that's just celebrities, right? That's just like athletes, actors, and musicians. I'll tell you a story, like, right? Well, I can, I can tell you a story about an athlete or an actor or a musician who desired to be rich and then fell. And that might be a good illustration for this point in the sermon, but you know what a better illustration is? Us. I think there is probably in most of us this desire to be rich, if we're honest. We might not put it that way. We might like say, might not have this goal of how like what needs to be this many million. But here's how you might know if you maybe have this at work in you, a desire to be rich. Maybe you're lured by an opportunity at work. It's an opportunity that will cause you to make more money. Now, there's going to be a cost associated with that. You're going to have less time probably with your family, less time to be able to, to fellowship with and serve your church family. But if you're tempted and lured by that, there might be lurking within you still this desire to be rich. If you're falling into the temptation to fudge just a little bit when you report things to the IRS, right? Like, well, they don't really need to know about this, and they're not going to find out about it, so I don't need to put that on there, right? Or like all that kind of thing. That might show in your heart this desire to be rich. If you go to the casino, play the lottery, that might show a desire to be rich. That's the only reason that you do those things, right? There's a lot of truth in this for us, that we, I think, are the people who desire to be rich. And a lot of those things seem harmless at, the, at first, but look at the devastation that they cause. Those who desire to be rich, what do they do? Fall into temptation. Fall into a snare. Fall into many senseless and harmful desires. And then the worst part, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We've seen this happen just on on the physical realm, right? That that somebody desiring to be rich causes destruction in a marriage, right? This desire to be rich or at least feel rich, you know, causes them to, to, to go into a lot of debt, buy things that they really can't afford. And then that financial stress starts to work its way into a minute and it gets ugly, right? And a marriage gets destroyed because of a desire to be rich. 
We've seen children be destroyed by this. We've seen all sorts of the careers be destroyed by this. When it's talking about being plunged into ruin and destruction, I think it's going even deeper than that. I don't think it's talking about marital ruin or career destruction. I think it's talking about something more eternal. And I get that from looking at verse 10. So let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, For the love of money, it doesn't say money itself, it says for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The truth is when we crave something other than God, we will begin to wander from the faith. The result is piercing ourselves with many pangs. In, in Matthew 6.24, Jesus said this, No one can serve two masters. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus said. Not possible. Again, our, our culture would think that it is. And so we would think that maybe I can get away with this. Maybe I can serve both God and money. Jesus says you can't. What ways are we serving money? I think if we actually thought about that, we'd be able to come up with a list. Verse 10 is a somber warning. It's so subtle. The love of money is so subtle. Because he uses the word there, it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Okay? A wandering is a subtle kind of thing. Like there's like the running away. You imagine like a child, right? A child's mad at mom and dad, has an argument, says like, oh, I hate you stomp their feet and they run away, right? That's not what it's talking about here. It's not that that people are just like looking at God and saying, God, I'm angry and I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. I'm walking away from Jesus. I'm done with this. That's not what we're seeing. We're seeing this much more subtle wandering, more like a kid in a mall who's with his parents, right? And then he sees something that catches his eye and he starts to go in that direction. Just a few little steps and he's over there like, oh, look at that, right? And he gets over there, and he's looking at it for a while, and he, you know, whatever it was, he's kind of enjoying at least just looking at it. And then he looks around. Where's mom and dad? That's kind of the picture I get in my mind. When he's talking about the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, through its craving, some people have wandered away from the faith, right? They've, they've, they've wandered, just kind of little step by little step, wandered away from the faith, and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's like uh, in Mark. Remember when we did the parable of the soils? Remember that? that? That third soil type where somebody initially receives the Word of God. It sounds good to them, right? It sounds good and they receive it with joy. But then what does it say in that third soil type? It says, those who hear the Word and seem to be responding, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the Word and it proves unfruitful. Very easy to become the third soil type. Especially easy in the United States of America. Turn back really quickly with me to Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. This is not written to Americans, but it certainly applies to Americans. Deuteronomy chapter 6. God had rescued His people, right? They were in slavery and bondage for 400 years, and God rescued them, miraculously rescued them out of slavery and gave them new life. And then look what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 10. God says, 
And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and you're full, okay, you get that picture? It's just like everything's just going great. You have everything you need. You don't just have food and clothing. You've got way more than that. That sounds like the United States of America? Yeah. Again, it's not written to us, but it applies to us. Then look at verse 12. Then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and He is a jealous God. We need to hear that word. We need to hear that warning. That, that in our plenty, in all that we're going to be thankful for, and all that we're going to share even maybe tonight with each other, I'm thankful for this. I, God, look, God has given me this, that we ought to be people that are content, and that in all of our plenty, in all that He has given us, we need to be care. We need to heed this warning that says, don't wander away. Don't forget your God who rescued you from slavery and brought you this into this land. Right? So that's what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But we never really did answer that question yet. What is the great gain that comes with godliness, with contentment? And so to answer that, I want to turn to, I think we're going to get uh, a lot of the problem here in, in verses 6 through 10. Next week is a lot of the solution in verses 11 through 17. So I'm not going to ruin that. I want you to turn right now to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll close with this. In Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. You've heard that promise. Don't even look at it yet. Don't wait. Don't look at the promise. You've heard that promise before that God will never leave us or forsake us, right? You've heard that before? God will never leave you or forsake you. Do you know the context of that? That's from Hebrews 13. Let's look at the context of that. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Did you know that that was the context of that promise? That, that the Lord will never leave you or forsake you? We usually quote that when, when we're going through a really hard time, right? Going through something really hard, we say, but the Lord will never leave. And that's true. The Lord will ne- but the context here in Hebrews is keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you. You know what that tells me? That tells me that our security does not come from the things that we have. Our security comes from the one who is with us, the one who will never leave us or forsake us. The great gain of godliness with contentment is God Himself, His presence with us. And when we have that, when we have the very presence and the promise of God's continued presence with us, that He will never leave us or forsake us, other things will. The things that we buy will go away. We won't always have the income that we have. Like, We don't have any of that promise to us. So keep our lives free from the love of money. Be content with what we have because what we have is this. 
we have this promise that God Himself dwells with us and He will never leave us or forsake us. That's what makes us content people. We will not be content if we get an upgrade to our phone or a newer car or more, more whatever. That will not make us content. What will make us a content people is that we recognize that God has given us this promise in Christ that He will never leave us or forsake us. That's what gives us security and peace and satisfaction and joy and contentment. That's the gospel. And I don't want to look over the fact that I know that there are those here this morning who are feeling discontent, like all of us are. But I want to point out that potentially the reason for your discontentment is that you don't have God dwelling with you. You don't have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you because you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus as your Savior. The truth is this. You need to know this. That Jesus is the fountainhead of all contentment. That you're not going to find contentment until you're in Him. Augustine once said this, May my soul be ever restless till it finds its rest in you. If you're feeling your soul being very restless and looking at all of what life has to offer and saying, it's not enough. I thought it was going to be it. I thought this was going to be it. But it's not right. If you're looking at all of that, and you're still discontent, might it be that you don't have Jesus, who is the fountainhead of contentment, who is the source of all joy and satisfaction? I think that's very possibly true for you. You need to be honest with yourself. Your discontentment is a symptom of a disease. You're sick. You have this tendency in you that's natural to covet, to break the tenth commandment, which says, you shall not covet, but we all covet. Right? And so you are a diseased lawbreaker on your own. That's not a good place to be. To be a diseased lawbreaker. You, you have this disease called sin. You are one who has broken the law. And what is your hope? You need to know that you're going to be judged. Your disease is going to end in death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. This disease that you have will lead to death cost of discontentment is high. And the, and the sad thing is, there's no loopholes in the law. There's no medicine. You can't take anything and you can't argue your way out of this. You are standing guilty and condemned and headed towards death apart from Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the truth. What you need is you need a Savior. You need the lawmaker and the judge to come and declare you not guilty. You need the great physician to come and to heal you. The good news is this. He has come, and His name is Jesus. He came to take your punishment by dying on the cross. He came to bear your sin in His body on that tree. He came that by His wounds you might be healed, and so you are. In your discontentment, it's sinful, it's offensive to our holy God, and you stand under His just judgment. But He has come, the judge Himself has paid your ransom. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. If, if you're in a spot today where you're looking at your life and saying, I'm just, I'm not there, I'm seeking after all sorts of other things, I've sinned. Then, then you can say to God something like this. You just say, God, 
I've been chasing after so many other things, things that I thought would give me joy and contentment, satisfaction. But God, in doing so, I have broken your law. I have put other gods before you. I've coveted. I'm a sinner, God, and I deserve condemnation. I'm sick and I deserve death, but God, I thank you for sending Jesus to pay my penalty. So now, God, I, I want to worship him. I want, I want him to be my source of joy and satisfaction and hope for the rest of my life. And so, God, today I put my faith and trust in Jesus to be my Lord and to be my Savior. A, a prayer like that doesn't save you, but if that's the desire of your heart, if, you, if you're turning from your sin, recognizing your sin and God's holiness and saying, I'm turning from that and I'm trusting in Christ, that's how you're saved, by faith. Saved by faith alone, by God's grace alone, in Christ alone. If you're a Christian here this morning, we need to know this. We've been given a great gift. We have great gain because we have God himself. Will we be content with what we have? Food, clothing, but even greater than that, godliness with contentment, which is great gain. The promise that God has given us that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And because of that, we will no longer have to chase after another thing, another, another whatever we think will make us content because we already have everything that we need in Christ. It's good news for us.